Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fury, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong, in fact, a perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, Jesus is his name, whoever lives and intercedes for me. Our names are written on his hand, our names are graven on his heart, and we know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. And we thank you, Jesus, for the reality of those words. We thank you for the reality of that vision. Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2 that by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the right, the power of access to the very throne room of God. And we thank you for that privilege, Lord. We sit in a gymnasium in Elk River, Minnesota, but in truth, Lord, before you, we sit at the very feet of a father who has done more than we can imagine to save our souls, who has written our names in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world and sent his only begotten son to live a righteous life and die a real death and to be raised from the dead that we might know you and love you and walk with you and talk with you and receive from you all the days of our lives. We stand in the presence of the great and mighty King this morning. And for those of us who believe in you, Lord, we don't stand here as your subjects, we stand here as your sons and as your daughters. Through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know you intimately. And it's in that context that we gather now to hear the word of of God. And Lord, we need to hear from you. Father, I have prepared myself as best as I can. I've spent hours 
trying to understand your word and receive your word into my heart, and I will do my best to preach your word faithfully today, but Father, we need to hear from you. And I pray that as I speak, that you would be working in the congregation. I pray that as I speak, you would be stirring in and among your people. I pray that you would be pricking hearts, Lord, disciplining your children, encouraging your children, healing your children, guiding your children, empowering your children, empassioning your children. Oh, Father, come now and do things that we could never think or ask or imagine, things that we could never do in our own power. Come now. Glorify your great name and build up your church, I pray. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do. For we pray it in the powerful and patient name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus Christ made a promise. These are not just words. This is actually a promise. He said, I will build my church. And then in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he said this. He said to his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth, all the way even to Elk River, Minnesota. You're gonna go everywhere and you're gonna speak my name everywhere. Acts 1.8, in a way, is a repetition of the promise. I will build my church. Beloved, Jesus is up to many things in this world. But the primary thing that Jesus is doing in the earth is building his church. I fear that you've heard that kind of thing so many times that the reality of it is lost on you. I want you to really take time and let this sink in. The primary thing that Jesus is up to in the earth is building his church. That's what he's up to. Since this is the primary agenda of our Lord, in this life. Let me just ask a few questions of those who believe here today, and we'll come back to these at the end. On a scale of one to 10, how engaged would you say that you are in the labor of your Lord? If a one means that you believe in Jesus, but that you're essentially unengaged in exalting Christ and edifying the church around the world, and a a 10 means that you're imperfect, but you're giving all that you can of your time and talent and treasure to exalt Christ's name in the world. If that's the scale, then how are you doing? Where do you fall on the scale? Do you understand how Christ means to build his church? Do you know the parts that he uses in the process? Do you know the part that he has for you to play? Have you sought him? Have you discerned that? Are you passionate about playing your part, and are you playing your part? How are you doing, beloved? How engaged are you in the work of your master? His primary labor on this earth is building his church. So how are you doing with that? Are you praying for kingdom work? Are you preaching the gospel or somehow supporting those who are preaching the gospel? Are you sacrificing and even suffering for the sake of the name, for the joy that is set before you? Are you eager to enter into the joy of your master by engaging in work with your master? However you would answer those questions this morning, I pray that the message today will give you a a greater sense of clarity about what Jesus is up to in the world. And I pray that the message would give you a greater sense of clarity about maybe the part that you have to play and that God, by the Holy Spirit, would give you a deeper passion to play your part. I pray that today we would not just play church, but that somehow the power of the Spirit would descend upon us also 
so that we would be eager to leave from this place and play our part for the glory of Christ, whatever that part is. Last week, we meditated together on what's often called the Jerusalem Council, and there it was decided, praise be to God, that Gentiles did not have to live as Jews in order to be Christians. In other words, Gentiles did not have to follow all the dictates of the law of Moses in order to be saved. Rather, the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem decided that Jesus Christ alone was and is enough. Amen? As I told you last week, Matt Ward had said to me, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. But Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. Christ alone is enough. And having reached this monumental decision, the apostles of Jerusalem sent Paul and Barnabas and others out of Jerusalem back up to Antioch to announce to the Gentiles that they were free in Christ. They were free from the law and they were free to love. And when Paul and the others had finished this task, most of the team went back to Jerusalem while Paul and Barnabas stayed there in Antioch, strengthening the church, preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God. And there we pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 36. After Paul and Barnabas had spent some time in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, they had probably spent the winter there and now the springtime was coming where it was easier to travel And probably around that time, Paul suggested that he and Barnabas go back to all the places where they had preached the gospel, that they would visit church after church and strengthen the church, announce the apostles' decision, teach them more about Jesus, preach the gospel in their cities. And Barnabas was really excited about this. He was eager to do it. Barnabas added to Paul's suggestion by saying, hey, why don't we take uh, John with us? He was also called Mark, so I'll just call him John Mark. John Mark had forsaken the team back in chapter 13, verse 13, on their first missionary journey. They were out preaching the gospel across the island of Cyprus, and then they went up to the mainland there in in what is today the southern part of Turkey. And for some reason, in that stretch of the journey, John Mark decided to abandon the team, and Paul remembered that. So now Barnabas wants to take him along, and Paul objected. For Paul, the mission was just too serious to bring somebody who might flake on them. The, the requirements were just too high to bring an immature person with them. They needed people who would be faithful all the way to the end and never give up. They needed people who were willing to suffer, even suffer greatly for the sake of the name. Not everybody's cut out for that. I don't think that Paul was against John Mark as a person. I just think he looked at him and didn't think he was a fit for this kind of ministry. Not everybody is fit. Not everybody is called to go from one place to another and suffer greatly, even to be beaten even to be thrown in prison. And Paul didn't think John Mark could handle it. But Barnabas, you'll probably remember, his name means the son of encouragement. Barnabas is the the brother of the second chance, the third chance, the tenth chance, the twentieth chance. He sees in John Mark a spark of a young guy who wants to grow in Christ. He knows that he has failed. But God has worked in his life and he wants another chance. He wants in the game. He wants to go on the mission. He wants to redeem himself. And so Barnabas is advocating for him, but Paul just won't have any of it. And the, the argument between them becomes so sharp, which I take to mean intense at times. I don't think they were just sipping lattes and having a discussion. I think there are times where they're in each other's faces arguing. There was a lot of emotion involved. There's a lot of heat involved. They, the, the, the argument was sharp. The division was sharp. The disagreement was sharp. 
and they ended up dividing. This famous missionary team, the first missionary team in the history of the church broke apart. Barnabas took John Mark, and you'll see, if you can go to the map, you'll see there, they were up in Antioch on the right of the map. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and he went down to that island called Cyprus. Paul took a guy named Silas and went up the coast and across to the east through Syria and Cilicia. Now, this split, I want to be really clear, was totally unnecessary. This did not have to happen. It was a serious split, and it was a little bit ironic. If you think about this, these two guys had just traveled from Antioch down to Jerusalem where they were part of a team that negotiated a settlement over a massively important theological issue that could have greatly divided the entire church of Jesus around the world. It could have destroyed the movement of the gospel into the world, and Paul and Barnabas were there being uniters. They were uniting the whole church over a massive theological issue. And now in just a very short period of time, they can't even come to an agreement about taking a guy on a trip with them. This is ironic. This is serious, beloved. It would have hit the church really hard. In my own experience, I know not all of you know Bethlehem well, but I'm thinking of like John Piper and Tom Steller who worked together at Bethlehem for 33 years. If those two got into such a division that they had to split from each other, my heart would be torn. It'd be like, brothers, why can't we figure this out? But that's what it was. I don't want to minimize the seriousness of this this division, but I also want to jump to the other side and say I don't want to maximize and make too much of it because even though it was sad, even though it was not plan A, God made the most of it. God took these lemons and made lemonade, to use the famous metaphor. God took this one missionary team, poured some grace on it, and now made two missionary teams. You had one going to Cyprus and one going up the coast. Again, this was not plan A, but God poured his grace over it. And I assume that they might not have been super happy with each other when they left, but I assume that they were still friends. I assume that they were still brothers in Christ. The Bible says, Luke writes specifically, that the church blessed them, the church sent them. So I don't think they were so limited to each other that they hated each other. I don't think that was the case. I just think that they could not agree, so they decided, you know what's best is you go your way, I'm going to go my way. And in this way, God poured grace on an unnecessary division, and the name of Jesus Christ continued to be exalted in the earth. I learned a huge lesson here, beloved, and for our church, great time to hear this lesson. Even when there is practical division among people who really love each other, Jesus Christ will continue to pour his grace upon his people so that they have power to exalt his name. Jesus will continue to build his church. In the end, Satan will not succeed. In the end, Satan will lose. In the end, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. That's the reality by which we live. And so it is that Paul and Silas set out on the second missionary journey, the first part of which we're going to cover today, and Lord willing, next week we'll cover the second part. Luke tells us there at the beginning of chapter 16 that he and Paul and Silas first went to Derbe, and then they went to a city called Lystra, which you can see right up there in, in the middle where, the, where the, the line is going across. You can see Derby there and Lystra there. You may remember that in Lystra, Paul was nearly stoned to death. And for those of us living in modern America, we're not talking about pot smoking here. It's not that kind of stoning. It's the bad kind of stoning. It's the kind you don't want. It's the kind where they throw rocks at you until you die. 
and they tried to kill Paul there. In fact, they thought they had killed him. They dragged him outside of the city, but by the grace of God, he lived. And by the grace of God, Paul risked his safety and now even risked his life and went back to the city of Lystra for the third time to preach the gospel and to strengthen the church. And God was very, very gracious to him there. There, Paul met a young man who would become a lifelong companion and his primary protege in ministry. That young man's name was Timothy. He was the son of a Greek father who probably had died by this time, and his mother was Jewish. He was a believer in Jesus Christ, and for whatever reason, Paul saw saw something in this guy. And whatever he saw, Paul wanted, number one, to take him with on the journey. Paul wanted to add him to the team. Paul saw the calling of God upon him. He saw maturity. I don't know exactly what he saw, but he wanted this guy. And so to prepare him for the journey, they decided to have Timothy circumcised. Since his father was a Greek, he was never circumcised, but they decided to go ahead and have him circumcised. Now, I want to be really clear, especially for those of you who were here last week, we talked about the whole issue of circumcision. Paul and Timothy were not circumcising Timothy in order for Timothy to be saved. This is not an issue of salvation here. They had Timothy circumcised for the sake of the mission. They were trying to remove a stumbling block that would make it hard for them to preach the gospel to the Jews. Paul would later write this. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, because I'm going to read a few verses, but you don't have to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul later wrote this. 1 Corinthians 9, 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, in other words, in Christ I'm free from the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, although I'm not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel. Boy, I hope you hear that. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul and Timothy did whatever they had to do to prepare to preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus Christ himself would be a massive stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't want any practical thing to be an unnecessary stumbling block, so they did this out of love. Once it was done, they traveled through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, which you can see up there. It's a little bit hard to see, but Phrygia and and Galatia are on either side of that city of Antioch there, kind of in the middle. And, and as they went, they were strengthening the churches and doing everything that they could to build them up in the grace of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, Luke writes, forbid them to speak the gospel in Asia. And what he means by Asia is that whole part that's south of the red line that's going across there. And so they continued on. And it says that again, they wanted to go up into Bithynia, up there in the north part. They wanted to preach the gospel to the northerners. But again, Luke says that the Spirit of Jesus forbid them to go up, so they kept following along, along that red line there. That red line follows a very famous trade route, and they came along that famous trade route to that little city of Troas on the coast there, to that port city. Now before we talk about what God did at at Troas, I want to pause here for just a second and ask this question. How exactly did the Holy Spirit forbid them from going into Asia and from going into Bithynia? What did that look like? As I've read and prayed and thought about it myself, I see a couple of options. One, 
is that through the private and corporate prayers of the people of God, Jesus made his will clear. As they prayed about, Lord, should we go here, should we go there? Somehow the Spirit of God said, no, don't go there, go here. Another possibility is that they ran into practical problems. Somebody might have got ill. They might have not been able to gain entrance into this country or that country. There might have been unfavorable traveling conditions. There might have been, in other words, some circumstantial thing that kept them from going south and kept them from going north. We don't really know what it was. As I think and pray about it, though, I think that circumstances might have played a part, but overall, I think that mainly what happened here is that through prayer and fasting, Jesus Christ made his will clear to his people. If I know anything about Paul, I think this guy is pretty resolute And if he felt that God called him to go into Asia, I don't care what the road conditions are or what the circumstantial problems are, he would have got to Asia, right? Can you imagine Paul saying, ah, it's kind of hard, I think I'll give up. I don't think so. I think circumstances might have slowed the team down, maybe, but one way or the other, the primary thing that happened here is in prayer, as his people sought his will, Jesus said, no. Lord, shall we go then up to Bithynia? Jesus said, no, continue on. And in this way, they came to Troas. Beloved, these people were prayerful people, seriously prayerful people. A lot of us talk about prayer. These folks lived a life of prayer. They sought the Lord until he made his will clear, and then they moved. They got the order right. You seek God until you hear the voice of God, and when you hear the voice of God, you move out in boldness and in power. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore I think they were eager to follow the very specific guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so I learned from this that Jesus builds his church in part as his people seek his will. And again, as I said earlier, I've been thinking about this all morning, I'm afraid that that sentence is so innocuous to you because you've heard this kind of thing so many times that it will be lost on you. But I want you to really take the time and hear this because I think this is the major building block of how Jesus builds his church. First thing that he does is that he causes his people to seek his will. Without that, the church will never be built. The Lord puts in the hearts of his people a desire to pray, a desire to fast, a desire to be with him, to know him, to fellowship with him, to see him seated on the throne, to receive his power, to receive his authority, to receive his love, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, and then yes, of course, to receive his specific instructions about where to do, where to go and what to do. That is the first building block of the church. He builds his church as his people seek his will, really seek his will. You know, I hope that you know, that Jesus actually has the ability to say to you and to the church, do not go that way, do not go that way, go that way. But this requires that we open up our word day by day, that we know the Bible backward and forward, and that we're constantly praying, constantly seeking, constantly humbling ourselves before Jesus, that we are familiar with what it means to be in his presence together as a people. And as we are there in his presence, our Lord, our Savior, our precious Redeemer is faithful to speak to us. The Lord builds his church as his people seek his will. I pray that we'll have ears to hear today. In this way, the people came to Troas. That city was very important. 
you can see that it's a port city. And you can see by the line, that line doesn't just represent where Paul went. That line represents a bridge, a trade route that was there. By ship, Troas was the eastern port for the bridge between Asia and Macedonia. It wasn't a, a very huge city, but it was a very important city because it served as a bridge. So Jesus wasn't unwise when he landed his people right there. He knew exactly what he was doing. While they're there, Paul goes to sleep one night. And whether he was asleep or awake, we don't know. But we do know this. In the nighttime, he had a vision, and it was a very powerful vision. He saw a man, whatever the man was, whatever he looked like, I don't know. But he knew that he was from Macedonia, over there on the other side of the sea. He saw a man in this dream. And in the dream, the man was begging him. I think Luke uses the word urging him, but I see a man begging. So this is an intense dream. This isn't just a guy saying, hey, why don't you come on over? This is a guy absolutely begging for help. Here were the words that Luke recorded. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And again, I just see a man pleading, please, please, I'm begging you, come and help us. The next morning, Paul woke up, shared the vision with the team, and I I imagine in my mind's eye that they had time to discern this. I don't think they just automatically bought in. I think they took time to test this, to bring this before the Lord. Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? Is this of you? And they determined that indeed it was from the Lord. And so they were very quick to obey. And they did everything they could immediately to find how to get from Troas over to Macedonia. None of them had ever been there before. So they're just living by faith. And they quickly sought to obey. How do we get to where Jesus is calling us? And here I see three lessons for us. First of all, I do think that God still sometimes uses visions and dreams to guide his people. I've had some dreams like this myself. In fact, right now coming to my mind were several dreams I had when Kim and I were dating and getting to know each other. And for us, we liked each other, but really what we were seeking out is, Lord, is this your will? Do you want us to be married? And I can remember right now three visions, powerful visions that I had. Dreams, two of them were dreams, one of them was when I was awake, where the Lord used this to confirm, yes, I want you to marry, I want you to marry. And I believe that those were of the Lord. You know, 20 some odd years later, the proof's in the pudding, right? God still uses visions and dreams to to direct his people. We should not automatically reject them, but I would warn that we should greatly test them, though, right? If you just have some dream and come and tell me that God spoke and that I have to obey it, I'm gonna say, no, no, no. (laughs) First Corinthians chapter 14, the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. In other words, if you have a spirit of prophecy and God speaks to you, you must be tested by other people who have a similar gift. Gone are the days when a person can come in and say, thus says the Lord, and then everybody just has to submit without question. Those days are gone. Now the Lord speaks and we test. We test by prayer. We test by the word. We test by deliberation. And we come to a mind about what the will of God is. God still uses visions and dreams. So beloved, pay attention to what he's doing in your life. There's a person or two in this church that gets visions from time to time, that gets pictures from time to time, and I cherish those things. We test those things. Sometimes they help us. They are not the Bible, but they are still helpful supplements to the way that God leads his people. Second lesson, when the Lord makes his will clear, we should be very quick to obey. I love this about Paul. When he figured out that the Lord said, nope, not Asia, nope, not Bithynia. Paul, go to Macedonia. He wasted no time. He didn't have any time to say, hey, well, let's just take a couple days off. It's been a rough journey. 
Let's do a little touring around the city. Maybe, you know, get some local food, hang out, play a little. No, for Paul, when the will of God was clear, then his day became clear. His agenda became clear. Get to Macedonia, get there now. I'm not saying that there's no time for rest in life. There's no time for pray, play in life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let us be like Paul. And when God makes his will clear, let us be quick to obey. Quick obedience is pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Let us be quick to obey. Third thing, Paul interpreted the cry for help mainly to mean that he should go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. When he heard this Macedonian man say, please, come over and help us, what Paul heard was, come and preach Jesus to us. So we should have a heart for the practical needs of people around the world, but beloved, we must never forget that the church exists to preach the gospel of Christ. That's why we're here. That's what sets us apart from the Red Cross or whatever other organizations are out there. We should feed people, but we must preach Christ. We should visit the prisoners, but we must preach Christ. We should clothe the naked, but we must preach Christ. We should care about people's practical needs. Of course, we should care about their practical needs, but we must preach Jesus to them. Amen? The Lord helps by preaching the gospel, and everything else follows on from there. So let me add to what I said before. Jesus builds his church as his people seek his will and preach his word. Both things are very important. The way he builds his church is as his people seek his will. And then when he makes his will clear, Paul, go from Troas to Macedonia and get there now. When he got there, his heart was to preach the word. This is how Christ builds the church. Eager to obey his master, Paul and the team set out across the Aegean Sea and they eventually came to the town of Philippi, which I hope you can see a little bit down the coast. The map's kind of hard to read, but if you get there, it's just a little bit down the coast there. Philippi was a leading city and a Roman colony, and as you can see in the middle of chapter 16, if you look at verse 13 there, you'll see that right in the middle of verse 13, Luke writes this. He says, we remained in this city some days. And do you notice the word we there? This is the first of what are called the we passages, and it implies that somehow Luke has now joined the team. So it's kind of interesting, because you got an author writing a book, and now, boop, the author's inside the book. It's kind of cool. And he will come back out. There's times when he's not traveling with Paul, then he'll come back in. So here, we don't know how or why exactly Luke joined the team, but he's joined the team. The most interesting explanation that I heard, it's just conjecture, but it's interesting, is that Luke was a doctor, right? And that maybe Luke, God gave Luke a heart to go with Paul because Paul's constantly getting beat up. He's getting rocks thrown at him. He's constantly getting hurt and he needed someone to attend to all of his wounds. So I thought, what a grace. What a great missionary team that one thing I gotta have on my team is a doctor because I'm gonna go get the snot beat out of me you know, from place to place to place. So I need somebody to attend to my needs. I don't know why Luke joined the team. I just know that he joined the team and I praise God that he did. We now have a firsthand account. And by the way, we can have the confidence that the guy that has been writing Acts from chapter one, verse one, wrote his book on the basis of eyewitness. He's not just making this stuff up. He face-to-face knew everybody that he's been writing about. And I praise God for that. I praise God for this man named Luke that none of us have met, but that all of us should be deeply, deeply grateful for. Luke joined the team. 
And he played his part as Paul sought to preach the gospel. And on a particular Sabbath day, Luke went to where the Jews were. In the city of Philippi, there was not a a, a synagogue, but there was a place where the Jews would go to gather together and pray and to seek God on the Sabbath day. It was down by a river. So Paul and the team went down by that place where the Jews would gather and where God-fearing people would gather. And there, Luke tells us that they met a number of women, one of whom was a very well-to-do businesswoman named Lydia. Luke tells us that as Paul was preaching the gospel, and I love how he put it, he said that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Don't you love that? This isn't a matter that Paul had this amazing program that caused people to be saved. It's a matter of that while Paul was speaking the genuine gospel of Christ, the Lord himself came in and opened up Lydia's heart and allowed her to believe what Paul was saying. So she believed in Jesus Christ, and she was baptized. And praise be to God, her entire household, everybody within her sphere of influence, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were saved, and they were baptized. And this must have been massively encouraging to this missionary team who set out in faith across this land that they did not know, and took a journey across the sea into another land they did not know, because God had led them by a dream. And when they get to the city, a whole bunch of people get saved. Oh, what an encouraging time this must have been. Lydia was a wonderful, grateful woman, and so she persuaded Paul and everybody to come stay at her house. She insisted that they go there, and so they did. On some other Sabbath day, they went back down again to the place of prayer where they sought to share the gospel, and there they met this little slave girl. She was young, she was poor, and she had what Luke called the spirit of divination, So whatever that means, we know what the practical import of it was because Luke tells us that she she would tell the future. She was like a fortune teller. And some of the people of that city made a, 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 a bucket load of money off of her as she could tell people the future and they would pay them. They wouldn't pay her because she was a slave. They would pay them and they're getting rich off of the spirit that was living inside of her. For whatever reason, this girl started following Paul and the team around, and she followed them day by day by day. And she began to shout out a thing like this, day after day. She said, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you might think that that Paul would be grateful for that. That's not a bad sentence, right? These guys are servants of the Most High God. They have come to proclaim to you the way of salvation. I will just point out to you that that sentence is absolutely true. That is a true sentence. And you might think that Paul would have been glad that everywhere they went in the city, they had somebody from the city saying, listen to this guy. But the problem was that the sentence was emerging from an evil spirit that was being forced to bow to the will of Jesus Christ. It was not coming from the Spirit of Christ. And so Paul was very patient. He put up with this day after day after day. But at some point, I love that, that Luke uses this word because it makes Paul human to us. But it says, Paul finally just got annoyed with this thing. Annoyed. Please pay attention to that word. Great men of God get annoyed from time to time. I don't think it was just merely a fleshly thing, but I don't want to withhold this from him that he was just getting irritated. This was getting old for him. And so, by the power of Jesus Christ, he looks this young girl right in the eyes and he rebukes that demon and he rebukes the demon strongly. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He's speaking not to the girl, he's speaking to that spirit. And at that very hour, Luke says, the spirit obeyed and actually came out. I want to point out 
that this spirit was not mainly obeying Paul, it was mainly obeying Jesus Christ who was using Paul. Paul was a, a man of God and a great man of God indeed, but the power was in the name of Jesus and in the blessing of Jesus upon Paul, right? It's at the name of Jesus that demons tremble. It's at the name of Jesus that demons fall. God might use any of us to rebuke a spirit, but the power is in Christ, and all the glory goes to Christ. So Paul said, in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And this spirit actually obeyed. This was power granted from Jesus to build his church. This incident was very worship-evoking for those who believed in Jesus. They were amazed to see the power of Christ, of the living Christ at work among them, in their little town, right in their little city. The great king of kings had come there to visit, and this was proof positive. But for those who didn't believe in Jesus, they were not happy about this. And given what I've told you in the story so far, can you imagine why they might be unhappy? The reason is this, it's simple. When the Spirit came out of her, their way of making money also came out of her. When the spirit was cast out, their income was cast out, and they were not happy about that. When you begin to mess with people's income, they get a little perturbed. And so they actually seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them. Luke specifically says, dragged them. Thus the need for Luke, right? They dragged them to the magistrates. They dragged them to the authorities. The authorities buy into the concocted stories that are being made up about Paul and Silas, and they beat them very severely. The way that Luke writes this in the Greek means that they pretty much beat them to the brink of death. They beat them very severely. And then they sent them to the prison, and the jailer was so concerned for them not to get out that he put them into the inner part of the prison, and he put them in what they called stocks. The stocks looked something like this. Sorry that you can't see it very well, but hopefully you can see enough that they would be sitting against the wall, their hands would be chained to the wall, and their feet would be straight out, locked in these stocks, and there they would be kept deep inside the inner prison so that they couldn't get out. Unless, that is... <laughs> they had a God that was mightier than the prison. Unless they had a God who was mightier than the powers that put them in prison, and, and it turns out that they did. You know what? You can chain the people of God, but you cannot chain the joy of Jesus Christ that lives inside of them. And so there these brothers are, locked up in prison, beaten badly. This, the one thing about this picture that is completely inaccurate is that they would not have looked healthy like that. They were just beat almost to the point of death. They were not cleaned up. We'll see later that they were cleaned up, which means at this point they were not cleaned up. They would have been bloody. They would have been bruised. They would have been battered. Maybe had fat lips. Maybe had a broken nose. They were not in good condition. You can beat the servants of God. You can chain the servants of God, but you cannot chain the joy of Jesus Christ living inside the servants of God. So there they were, locked up, bruised and battered. And what were they doing? At midnight, by the way, they're singing songs to God out loud. They're praying prayers to God out loud. The prison became their church. And all the prisoners heard this, and surely they were amazed. And at some point, God sent a massive earthquake. Now, I came from earthquake country out in California. I've been through lots of earthquakes. So the, I'm thinking this was probably between a five and seven on the Richter scale because it was powerful enough of an earthquake that it actually shook the stocks off from the walls, caused the chains to fall off from the walls, and it allowed every prisoner to go free if they wanted to go free. 
This possibility put the jailer into a panic because he thought that indeed the prisoners had escaped. And you have to understand, in those days, if the leader of the prison let the prisoners out, they killed the leader of the prison. All right? So he knew that he was about to get the death penalty, and rather than face the torture that the Roman government would put him under, he decided to kill himself. By the grace of God, Paul shouted out and said, don't do it, stop, do not kill yourself. All the prisoners are here. And so the jailer commanded that lights be brought, which I imagine they put torches or something like that. They run into the inner part of the prison and the jailer, the man who had power over Paul and Silas, falls at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Talk about a great witnessing opportunity, amen? Can you imagine that? Someone comes and falls to their face right before you and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul preached the simple gospel. And I want to encourage you with this. When God sends you into this world to preach Jesus, don't think that you have to know big, thick theology books. Don't think you have to have everything together. There's a place for all of that. But listen to what Paul said to him. He said, friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Simple. Amen? I hope you feel freed by that. Maybe somebody in Caribou, I doubt that they'll fall on their face before you, but maybe somebody in a Caribou coffee will ask you, what must I do to be saved? Friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. By which he meant anybody in your household who believes, they will also be saved. And so the jailer made it so that Paul could freely preach the gospel to his whole household. And in their day, the word household meant everybody under your authority. So it didn't just mean your spouse and your children. It meant people in your sphere of influence. So they gathered a number of people. Paul preaches the gospel. Every one of them comes to Christ. God used this natural disaster, if you want to call it that, to put fear in the hearts of people so that they were ready to hear the gospel. And when Paul simply said, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, they all said, amen, we want in. And they were actually baptized. And the jailer felt so, so grateful that he brought Paul into his personal quarters, still in the prison complex, but into his personal corners, and he cleaned them up. This is how I know that at this point they did not look like that. By the way, there's another point. They weren't white guys. <laughs> That's another issue. They were Israelis but they were certainly not clean because at this point now, the jailer who had just been made clean by the power of Christ makes the servants clean by washing them with water. Isn't that beautiful? I just find that so beautiful. The Holy Spirit washes over these people, saves their lives, saves their eternal souls, and in gratefulness, he essentially baptizes the servants and cleans them, cleanses them, and then they enjoy a meal together. They celebrate what God has done. This jailer and his whole household just became one church with a little slave girl who had a demon cast out of her and with a rich businesswoman and her whole household. These people who are very different culturally and would have probably had nothing to do with each other had just become one in Christ. What a powerful testimony to the gospel. What a powerful testimony to those who seek the will of God and then once they hear the will of God, they move. They get the order right. Find the orders and then move in that order. Oh, beloved, the Lord was so good to them. The next day, by a variety of circumstances, which I'm not gonna go into, uh, Buster read this for us. They were released from jail. They were asked to leave the city, and they did. They first strengthened the church, and then they left the city, and we'll come back to that in a moment. 
But for now, I just want to step back from the story and add a little bit to what I've been saying about how Christ builds his church, because now I see a third element, and this will be the last element to add for the day. Jesus builds his church as his people seek his will, as they preach the gospel, and as they suffer for the sake of the name. Jesus builds his church as his people wait on him until they've heard, go there and do this. And then he builds his church as they go there and preach the gospel. They might do other things. They might show mercy to people in lots of ways, but mainly they're preaching, preaching, preaching Jesus. And third thing, he builds the church as they're willing to suffer. Christians don't go look for suffering. The issue is that we're willing to suffer, that other people might come to know Jesus. Not everybody in, is, in Islam would do this, but, but the radicals in Islam will kill you so that you come to their faith. A, a true believing Christian will die so that someone else will come to the faith. We are willing to suffer for the sake of the name. This is how Christ builds his church, through prayer, through preaching, through suffering. So by these graces, by these miracles of prayer, preaching, and suffering, Jesus built his church in Philippi, and now he sent the team to another place. You can see the name Thessalonica down there, sort of in the middle of, of, of that part of Macedonia. The, the reason that the name is all the way down there is just because they couldn't fit it up higher but Thessalonica was actually north of that city of Berea up there. So they went from Philippi down to Thessalonica. And when they got there, Paul did what he always did. He went to the synagogue and he began to preach. For three weeks in a row, he went to the synagogue and he taught them that Christ had to suffer, he had to die, he had to rise again, and that he is the Christ and that they should believe. And after three weeks, some of them were persuaded, some of them still had questions, and some of them were insanely jealous and angry. And so they actually recruited a mob in their city that almost incited a whole riot. And long story short, or maybe I should say short story, even shorter, that mob made life very difficult for believers in the city of Thessalonica. And so the believers thought that it would be best to get Paul out of there. And so at night they snuck him out of Thessalonica and they brought him down to that city there called Berea. Berea was about 25 miles away from Thessalonica, so I don't know how long that would have taken them to walk or, or to ride there, but it would have taken a while. So they go out at night, they get there in the day, and, and, and Luke just tells us that as soon as Paul gets into the city, he wastes no time, and he goes right to the synagogue, and he begins to preach the gospel. And Luke tells us about the Bereans, that they, the Jews there were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica for two reasons. One is that when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received the word of God with joy. They listened to the message that God had sent. But having listened to the message, they didn't just automatically buy into it. They tested the message by the word of God. They searched the scripture day by day by day. They're digging voraciously to see, are these things true? Are these things true? And for that, they were noble. For humble reception of the word and for humble testing of the word. And I'll tell you something, beloved. You can tell a true teacher by this. A false teacher gets really uppity when people test him by the word. They get angry. They begin to argue back. They begin to try to put you in your place. And sometimes there are stories in the Bible where people had ill motives. They, they weren't really trying to test by the word of God. They were just trying to make trouble for the servants of God. In those cases, Paul did not receive those kind of people. But when someone truly comes to test the word of God with a sincere heart, a true teacher rejoices. A true teacher like Paul tells his companion Luke, hey Luke, when you write about Berea, I want you to use these words. Say that they were more noble than the other Jews. 
Why? Because they humbly received and humbly tested the word of God. So we should feel free in Christ to test all of our teachers by the word because any true teacher will rejoice in that. Because they had this heart, beloved, many people in Berea actually believed in Jesus and began to walk with him. Unfortunately, Jews from Thessalonica, 25 miles away, heard that this had happened, and so they get some people together, and they go down to Berea, and they make a bunch of trouble there, and again, the church decides that it's best to get Paul out of there, so probably for the sake of his life. And so some brothers escort him down the peninsula there, and they bring him all the way down as far as Athens, which you can see a little bit on the right bottom there. And after they brought him to Athens, they went back home, and Paul said, listen, as soon as you can get Silas and Timothy to me, please send them. And next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up the story right there. But for now, I want us to see that again in Thessalonica and in Berea, Jesus built his church as his people sought his will, preached his word, and suffered for the sake of his name. They did not go to Thessalonica because it seemed like a good idea. They went there because Jesus sent them there. And when Paul was sent out of Thessalonica, he didn't go to Berea for no good reason. He went there because Jesus sent him there. He sought his will first. And then when Jesus made his will clear, Paul moved. Beloved, the order of, is of utmost importance. Fruit in the kingdom of God is born of obedience. And obedience is born of prayer. Jesus builds his church as people seek his will. And then when he went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel. When he went to Berea, he preached the gospel. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel. We know from other things that Paul wrote that they also cared about people's practical needs. Amen to that. We must do that if we love people. But we must preach the gospel. And in this way, Jesus builds his church. And then, again, third thing. It's not that Paul was looking to suffer. We don't make an idol of suffering. If you enjoy being beat up and thrown in prison and stuff, you need therapy, right? Paul wasn't looking to suffer, but he was willing to suffer anything that some people might come to know the beauty, the power, the joy, the depth of having eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ still builds his church through prayer, preaching, and suffering. This is how he does it. So, for those of us who are here today who may not believe in Jesus Christ yet, I have just one question for you, and it's this. Will you, like Lydia and her household, and like that poor little slave girl who came to believe in Jesus, like the Philippian jailer and his whole household, like some people in Thessalonica and Berea, will you believe in Jesus Christ today? Has the Lord possibly opened up your heart today so that the preaching of the gospel makes sense and you're ready to believe in Jesus? I urge you to do that. I believed in him in 1986, and I have never regretted it. Sometimes life has been harder, not easier, because I've been following Christ, but the, the most massive issues of life for me are completely settled in Christ because he has done it all for me. And I urge you simply to believe in him, and you will be saved. If you make that kind of choice today, I want to ask you to come up and talk to me after the service, and we can begin together taking the first steps of obedience in Jesus. For those of us who do believe in Jesus today, I have uh, one main question and a bunch of minor ones for you. To what extent are we engaged in the labor of our Lord? And I want to really invite you to let Jesus search your heart today. Don't settle for the status quo today. The Lord did not bring you here to just comfort you and send you on your way and leave you unchanged. The Lord wants to probe into your life 
and invite you into a better way of life. So how engaged are you? If he is still building his church through prayer, preaching, and suffering, are you willingly playing your part? Are you passionately playing your part, whatever that is? And if I could be more specific, I just want to probe into each of these areas, prayer, preaching, suffering. First of all, prayer. How is your personal and prayer life going these days? If you're being really honest, if you were to answer as honestly as you would in the presence of God, how's your prayer life going? Now, I'm talking about a particular kind of prayer life today. On the one hand, uh, it's no sin whatsoever to bring our personal needs before the Lord. In fact, I think it's a sin not to bring our personal needs before the Lord because the Bible says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. The Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every single thing, let your request be made known to God. Talk to God about everything in your life, every single thing in your life. Your father wants to do life with you, so it is no sin at all. It's a normal life in Christ to talk to your father about everything that's on your mind about your personal life. But today, I want to press beyond that a little bit, and what I'm asking about today is how is it going with you with praying for the kingdom work? How is it going with you praying for the lost? How is it going with you praying for preachers of the gospel and missionaries around the world who are deliberately seeking to spread the gospel? How is your prayer life with that? As I said, beloved, fruit is born of obedience and obedience is born of prayer. So are you often found in the presence of your Father praying for fruit and power for those who are preaching the gospel? Are you becoming more like Jesus by becoming more of an intercessor day by day? Do you spend any time at all praying for the lost, praying for missionaries, praying for evangelists, praying for pastors? And whatever your answer is, I just want to invite you again with me to let Jesus probe into your heart because some of us are really intercessors in this church. I know this for a fact, but we're nowhere near where Jesus wants us to be. I hope you understand that his goal is to make you like him and he ever lives to intercede. He's ever living to pray for other people. He wants us to be like that. So let him open up your heart. Let him probe into your life. Let him take you up another level and another level and another level to understand the joy, the passion, the power of a life of intercession. How are you doing with praying? This is how Jesus builds his church. And the church that prays is a church that will be built. So how are you doing? What will the Lord ask you to do today. Just, just let him probe into your life. Let him lead you step by step. Second thing, how are you doing with playing a part in the preaching of the gospel? Now, not everybody has the same kind of role in this. When I look at Paul's team, what I see is a man that mainly has the gift of speaking, and I think Silas did some speaking, Barnabas did some speaking, but mainly Paul was the speaker, and everybody else had a kind of supporting role. So I don't think that the picture is that everybody has to go out there and be the corner preacher or the preacher in a context like this or whatever. I'm not asking how are all of you doing in being preachers. I'm just saying in the proclamation of the gospel in our city and among the nations, how are you doing? Are you playing whatever part God has assigned for you to play? Have you sought him about this? Have you said, Lord, in the quest to exalt your name in the globe, what is the part you want from me? Am I mainly an intercessor? Am I mainly a supporter? Am I to go and be part of a team? Am I to go and be the actual preacher? Am I to go to prisons? Am I to do this? Am I to do that? Have you sought him? Are you saying, Jesus, please, whatever my part is, I want to be involved in your work? Are you pleading with him 
until he answers you, because he will answer you. How are you doing? My heart this morning, beloved, is not for you to feel this as a weighty call, like a, a call of duty. My goal this morning is to invite you into the joy of being part of the, the agenda of Christ to build his church in all the earth. The most privileged thing on this planet is to join Jesus in his work. So this is a call to joy, beloved. This is not a call to death and duty. This is a call to joy. How is your heart doing? Do you want to do what your Father is doing? Do you want to do what your Savior is doing? Let the Lord probe into your life. Maybe today, maybe this very day, God would use the power of his word to confirm a calling upon your life and set you to work. Please just pay attention to Jesus and what he would have to say to you. Third thing. As you become a prayer warrior, as you play whatever role the Lord has for you to play in the advancement of the kingdom, are you willing to sacrifice and possibly even to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus? Now, as I have been saying, I think this is very important, is that we as Christians don't make an idol of suffering. We don't go seek to suffer, but we are willing to suffer so that other people might know him if that's what it takes. The Lord paid an infinitely high price that we might know him and now by the power of his spirit, by the presence of him living in us, we're willing to incur any cost, any consequence that other people might know Jesus. So how are you doing with that? There are people in this world, even this day, that are paying a very high price for preaching Jesus. A friend uh, of mine, I, I saw some pictures that were put up on the internet the other day. And I don't know this guy who was killed, but there was a brother in Nepal preaching the gospel. And I won't tell you the details, especially since there's kids in the room, but it was horrific. And they killed him for preaching the gospel. Not everybody's going to have to suffer that kind of fate. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, not everybody's going to get that kind of privilege to die for the name of Christ. Most of us, though, will have to sacrifice of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure in order to play our part in the advancement of the kingdom. So again, I'm not asking you to make an idol of suffering. And I'm not trying to just, just you know, use things like suffering to, to scare you or to, to manipulate you or anything like that. I'm just saying, are you willing to enter into the work of the kingdom at any cost or consequence? For the joy that is set before you, are you willing to sacrifice for your king? And I will tell you, the only sacrifices that are really legitimate are the ones that Jesus asks you to make. Manipulation never, ever accomplishes the will of God. So what I'm saying today is are you willing to seek your Lord? Are you willing to seek your Father until he makes his will clear in your life, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence? Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I take that word all seriously. If you're going to be seriously engaged in the work of the kingdom, one way that you'll know it is that there's going to be a measure of sacrifice, a measure of suffering, a measure of pain, and the pain will be very sweet to you because it will be an entrance into the suffering of Christ. So how are you doing with this? I want to say before you publicly that if I'm answering very honestly, I have to answer yes and no to the question, am I willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the name? My answer is yes and no. There's part of me that's very eager to do anything I can to lay my life down for the sake of the name. But I would just flat be lying if I didn't say to you that there's also a part of me that loves the comforts of this life. I love my comfortable bed. I love the fact that I can just walk in the other room and get food anytime I want. I love my way of life. 
And there's a part of me that does not want to die to that. I'm just going to confess that out loud. My answer is yes and no. But I am willing for God to make me willing. I am willing for God to probe into my heart and teach me how to be an intercessor at a level that he wants me to be an intercessor. I am willing for Jesus to use me to preach the gospel in any way that he would want to use me in this city or in this earth. I am willing for Jesus to call me to make sacrifices and even to suffer for the sake of his name if only he will teach me how, if only he will give me the power to endure. I am willing for God to make me willing and I pray that you would follow in that kind of spirit today? Are you willing to play any part that God has for you to play if he would make you willing? And again, I just encourage you, let the Lord draw near to you today. Open up your heart and probe into your life. Whatever role Christ has for us to play, let us take up our cross and follow him today. Whatever role Christ has for us to play, let us take up our cross and follow him today. That's only possible by the power of his spirit. So I'm gonna take a little time now to pray. I know we're a little bit over in the service, but I just wanna let the Lord do his work here. So let's just pray for maybe three or four or five minutes. I'll open up. You can pray out louder in your heart, but let's offer ourselves to God. Lord, I thank you for this time that you've given to us. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you can apply your word to the life of your church, and I trust that you will do that now. And I ask you, Father, to stir in the hearts of your people. I ask you to shape us into your image, that you would teach us to pray, to preach, and to suffer for the sake of your name. Oh, Father, please draw near to us now and seal the work in us that you've been doing this hour. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this time and I pray that now as we rise to sing to your name that you would be pleased and that you would continue to confirm your work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.